0: Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. And today we're going to look at the first seven verses. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Somebody said that America has a love affair with water. When I was a child, if you wanted water, you just turned on the faucet these days you can buy just about every kind of water imaginable for example there is tap water distilled water filtered water purified water well water mineral water spring water artesian water glacier water volcanic water sparkling water alkalized water birch water and if that's not enough there's this thing called diet sprite zero which guess what is just water Water is one of the most important commodities we have. Just ask the farmer how important water is to life. Just ask the marathon runner or the athletic trainer how important water is to life. Science tells us you can survive a few weeks, perhaps, without food, but you're only going to make it a few days without water. Well, in our passage this morning, Israel experiences a water crisis for the second time in a matter of weeks, for the second time since God led them out of Egypt. In chapter 15, they came to this place called Marah, where the water was bitter, it was undrinkable. But there, God had Moses throw a tree into the water, and miraculously, the bitter became sweet. In Exodus 17, however, Israel comes to a place called Rephidim, and this time there isn't any water to be changed. This time there isn't any water at all. And in no time, the people became thirsty, they got desperate, and once again, Israel has to decide whether or not to trust God. Now, God is going to use this situation to teach Israel several things. He's teaching them to trust him. He's teaching them to depend upon him. He's teaching them that he is able and he is willing to meet their needs if they will but ask him But I believe most importantly, God puts them in this situation and God is going to use this in order to point them and to point us to another kind of water, a spiritual water that is desperately needed by everyone in this world because there is a spiritual thirst that we have as well deep in the heart of every man and it is a thirst that only God can quench. And so, as we look at this passage, it's just seven verses. Let's read it in its entirety. The Word of God says in verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people... Contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying... Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there are three different parts of the story that I would like us to focus on this morning in order to understand where this, going, this is going and what this has to say about how God quenches that spiritual thirst in our lives. First of all, I want you to notice what I call a common situation. A common situation. Verse 1 says that Israel arrived at a place called Rephidim, and that word in the Hebrew literally means resting place. Don't you just know how excited they were to come here? Rephidim, resting place. Finally, we're going to get some rest. Finally, no more problems, no more worries. This is going to be great. How long did that last? About five minutes because the end of verse one says there was no water to drink wait a second somebody led israel to this place called Rephidim, millions of people and no water well that's a failure in leadership somebody must have messed up maybe the people weren't following the will of god wrong verse one says that they set out notice this according to the commandment of the Lord. They were not there at Rephidim because they had taken a wrong turn. They were not there at Rephidim because they had gotten outside of God's will. They were there because the Lord led them there. And it's real easy for us sometimes when we are experiencing trials or tribulations to think, well, we must have done something wrong We must be out of God's will nope sometimes the will of God for your life will take you not around the storm but straight through it sometimes God leads us through the valley of the shadow of death God led Israel to a place without water on purpose in fact This is the fourth time that God has tested Israel in this way in just a matter of weeks. It's just one test after another test after another. I wonder, can anybody relate to that? You ask, well, why does God keep doing this? I want you to notice something. God led Israel out of Egypt to Marah, where the water was bitter. And then he led them through Elim and through the wilderness of Sin, where they had nothing to eat. And then God led them to Rephidim, where there was no water at all. Are you noticing a pattern here? How every time God leads Israel, every time that cloud moves, God is taking them from a place of provision and to a place of of need. Every time God moves them, it's to a place of greater dependency upon him. It's to a place where he alone can meet their needs. God led Israel to Rephidim so that they would learn to trust in him more. You see, we sometimes expect it to be the opposite. We think well if god is the one leading us surely it's going to be somewhere better if god is the one leading us surely it's going to be somewhere where the burden is lighter and the way is easier in fact we think if the path is more difficult we just assume it cannot be god's will but that's not how it works it doesn't work that way ladies and gentlemen Because God's plan for your life, his goal, is not to make you comfortable. God's goal is to make you holy. His goal is to teach you a greater dependency upon him. His goal is to make you more like him. And sometimes God will put you in your own Rephidim. Sometimes God will put you in a place with needs that you can't meet, only he can meet. This is a common situation in our lives. Maybe you're there right now. If not, wait a few minutes, because if you're not, you will be. We all come to Rephidim one way or another in our lives. This is a common situation. But then I want you to notice next a frequent reaction. How Israel reacted to this situation and how frequently we do as well. Verse 2 says that the people contended with Moses. And Moses said, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Just a few weeks earlier, Israel was in a similar situation in need of water. They should have known exactly what to do. Pray. Wait on the Lord. Trust him to meet their needs. The same God who gave them water at Marah would surely give them water at Rephidim as well. But that's not what they did. They did what they normally did. The Bible says they complained. They complained in Egypt. They complained at the Red Sea. They complained at Mara. They complained at the wilderness. We come to chapter 17, and it's like, here we go again. Now, when we first read this story, you know, we're kind of tempted to ask this question, why does God keep putting Israel in the same situation or almost the same situation over and over again. I believe God keeps putting them in the exact same situation because they're failing to learn the same lesson. It kind of reminds me of this article that was in the New York Times a few years ago about a, a particular woman who finally passed her driver's exam on the 960th attempt. I kid you not, this sweet 69 year old uh, grandmother named Cha Sassoon took and failed the driver's exam 959 times before she finally passed it. Now, I don't know about you, I think there ought to be some kind of limit, you know? If you fail the test for, I don't know, 100 times, maybe you don't need to be behind the wheel I mean that's just what I think anyway Hyundai Corporation they decided to give her a new car in commemoration of her accomplishment but as we read through Exodus Israel keeps failing the same test over and over again now folks we all make mistakes listen we are all going to fail some of the tests of life that's natural If you find yourself failing the exact same test over and over and over again, like Israel in Exodus 17, that could mean you're not learning, you're not listening, you're not seeking the Lord, you're not asking him, what is it you're trying to teach me in this situation? Well, Israel had a habit of complaining, but it seems like this time it reached a whole new level of hostility. Uh, Philip Riken, I believe, correctly stated that instead of trusting God, Israel questioned God, and Israel questioned three things about God in this passage. And it helps us to recognize these things because it's so common for us to do the same. And first of all, they questioned God's provision. They questioned God's provision. They said to Moses in verse 2, give us water that we may drink as if Moses is going to say okay sure let me reach into my pocket and pull out enough water for millions and millions of people what did they expect him to do but when they made that statement give us water that we may drink understand there's a little bit of an accusation in that statement they're saying to Moses God failed to provide for us so you had better do so man you talk about pressure they questioned God's provision they questioned God's protection look again at verse 3 and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst they're convinced that God has brought them this far just to allow them all to die of thirst they are convinced that by leading them to this place Moses is guilty of attempted murder at this point they've made this accusation against Moses several times now only this time it seems to be getting a little more serious In verse 4, Moses prays that prayer that every leader of every kind on some level prays at some point, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The people figured, well, if we're all going to die anyway, Moses might as well be the first. It seems there was even some conversations going on talking about executing their leader. Isn't it amazing, in light of all that Moses has done, that they would even entertain the thought? And I don't know about you, but I look at verse 4. It sounds like all of their complaining and all of their threats, they're starting to wear Moses down. We come to chapter 17, and and now Moses needs to be reminded of God's protection as well. Somebody needs to remind Moses, the same God who protected you from Pharaoh, will protect you from the mob. They question God's provision and his protection, but they also question his presence. In verse 7, at the end of the verse, the people asked this question Is the Lord among us or not? God, are you really there? Are you still with us? Have you abandoned us? You ever find yourself asking any of these questions? You know, it's one thing to take your problem to the Lord and tell him all about it. God invites us to do that. Cast your cares upon the lord but we need to understand there is a difference between asking god and questioning god you say well what's the difference when we ask god we assume god's faithfulness we may not have the answers we may not be able to explain it all but we are starting off assuming that yes god is faithful When we ask God, we assume God's faithfulness. But when we question God, we are doubting God's faithfulness. And, oh, there's a big difference between the two. When we are tested, when we are tried, it is so easy to react by questioning God's provision or His protection or His presence. But I want you to notice this. Israel was questioning God's provision But what did they see six days a week when they got up in the morning and stretched and opened up their tent and looked out? What did they see but manna covering the ground and God supernaturally providing for them. Why did they question God's provision? They questioned God's protection. Have they already forgotten how God protected them from the plagues, especially the Passover, how God protected them from Pharaoh's army? Why are they questioning God's protection? They're questioning God's presence. Lord, are you really there? And yet all they had to do was look up at the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, whereby day by day God led them. Why are they questioning God's presence? I can tell you why they questioned these three things, and I can tell you in just two words. Spiritual amnesia. They're suffering a case of spiritual amnesia. Psalm 106 describes this very moment in Israel's history, and in verse 13 it says, they soon forgot his works. Think about that. They soon forgot how quickly they forgot and how quickly we can forget God's works on our behalf. Folks, it's easy to develop spiritual amnesia. All you've got to do is stop counting your blessings, stop reading God's word, Stop praying, stop fellowshipping, stop worshipping, stop walking in obedience with the Lord, and you too will very soon, just like Israel, develop spiritual amnesia. This is a frequent reaction amongst God's people in a moment of crisis, in a moment of need, how quickly we are prone to question God's provision and his protection and his presence in our lives. It is a frequent reaction. But let me share with you what I believe is the most important part of this story. We see in this a single solution. God and God alone can solve this problem. And I want you to notice how he does it. It says in verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go." What is happening here? In Deuteronomy chapter 33, the Bible says that God the Israel tested God at Meribah. Now we get to the end of the passage, verse 7 Meribah is one of two new names which God gives to or Moses gives to this place called Rephidim. So at the end of the story you wind up with three different names for one place and all three of those names wind up getting used throughout the word of God but it's one place and Moses calls it Meribah And it's interesting because that word uh, in the Hebrew means to bring a lawsuit. The people said, We are going to put God on trial. God is being accused of. Neglecting to provide for them, refusing to protect them, failing to be with them. So in verse five, God says to Moses, I want you to go before the people and I want you to bring two things. He says, and both of these are very important in order to understand the story and what's happening. He said, first of all, bring the rod. It was the same rod that Moses held, that turned into a serpent, the same rod that touched the Nile River and it became blood, the same rod he held out over the Red Sea and the waters parted. God said, take that rod, because that rod, in a sense, on a, in some way, it represented the power and the authority of God. So God says, okay, they want to put me on trial, make sure you bring the rod. But then God also said, and bring with you some of the elders of Israel. Let me tell you why that was important. Because in those days, that is how you settled legal disputes. It's kind of like God was saying, we're going to convene a grand jury. God was saying, court is now in session. The people have decided they want to put God on trial and amazingly mercifully god says all right i'll indulge you this one time look at verse 6 behold i will stand before you there on the rock in horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink and moses did so and the sight of the elders of Israel. God said to Moses, I'm going to stand before you. And the Bible doesn't tell us a single thing about what that was like or how that appeared. All that we know is that in that moment, God was like a wall in between Moses and all of those people who wanted to bring him harm. There was a rock, and it must have been a very big rock. Moses was told, to strike the rock. That's the same word that is used over and over again during the plagues where it says God struck Israel. God was striking them in judgment. So God uses that word and tells Moses to strike the rock. He strikes the rock with the rod, and when he does, water comes forth. Now, there are a number of passages in the Word of God that comment on this story in Exodus 17. And we're not going to read all of them. But I want you to notice something. In Psalm 105, verse 41, what it says about this moment in verse 6, he opened the rock and water gushed out. And notice this. It ran in the dry places like a river. Now, please understand, yes, this absolutely was a supernatural act of God. This was a miracle that Moses struck the rock with his rod, and in that very moment, life-giving water came forth. But when we read some of these other passages, it does sound like there was some kind of spring very large spring underneath this rock just waiting nobody could see it but I believe it was already there and here's the point God knew that spring would be there unseen hidden before he brought them to Rephidim and that is why God brought them to Rephidim he knew that they were going to need water He made sure their need was met before it even existed. Remember this, when you are in a crisis and when you have an unmet need, God already had the answer before you even knew about the question. God already had a solution before the problem even existed. Now, this is true for every problem and for every need that we have in our life. It's especially true when it comes to our greatest problem and our greatest need. I'm talking about the problem of sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the Garden of Eden, before the tree of knowledge of good and evil, before the first sin, there was already the cross. And as we have seen so many times in recent weeks in the book of Exodus, when we come to the New Testament, New Testament writers, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, They look back to this story in Exodus chapter 17 and they see in this story a picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this story, a very brief statement that Paul made in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, this is what Paul said about this story in Exodus 17. He said, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There's a whole lot that we could say about that verse, but notice those last four words. Say them with me. That rock was Christ. In other words, the rock in Exodus 17 was a picture of Christ. There's something about Jesus we are supposed to learn from the story, Paul said. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor, where in the world is the gospel and the story? The people were thirsty. There was a rock. Moses hit it with his rod water came out into story, right? What does any of that have to do with the gospel? What does any of that have to do with Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Exodus 17, God allowed himself to be put on trial. God graciously submits himself to his own judgment. The rod, which represents God's presence, strikes the rock, and life giving water flows. The verdict is clear God is both holy and loving. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was put on trial tried and condemned not for any sins that he had but for your sin and for mine he then went to the cross where God the father struck him with the rod of divine justice as Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised For our iniquities, the punishment for our peace was placed upon him by his stripes. We are healed. Jesus took the blow that belonged to us. And because he did, two things flow. When he died on the cross, literally, physically, and the soldier pierced his side with that spear the bible says that water flowed from his side meaning that he had paid at all but just as important when jesus died upon that cross because he was struck for you and for me spiritual drink paul called it living water Flows from him to this day this is the water jesus was talking about when he met the woman at the well said if you drink the water that i offer you you will never thirst again it's the water that jesus was offering in john chapter 7 when he said anyone who is thirsty come to me Anyone who believes may come and drink, for the Scripture declares rivers of living water shall flow from his heart. You realize that later on in Israel's history, in Numbers chapter 20, there's another story almost just like this one in Exodus 17. Once again, Israel needs water. Once again, the people are thirsty. They're desperate. Once again, God leads them to a rock. But this time, God tells Moses to speak to the rock, not to strike it. What did Moses do? He was at the end of his rope. He was angry. And the Bible says he struck the rock twice. And God said to him, because of that, you will not enter the promised land. He was able to see it. He did not get to enter in. You think, well, man, that's such a a severe penalty. Why did God do that? What was the big deal? It was a big deal because the striking of that rock represented the striking of the Son of God on the cross for your sins and for mine. And Jesus died once. He was stricken once and for all for sin. He made one payment that was enough to cover the sin debt of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And therefore, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Therefore, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why it was a big deal that he only strike that rock one time. Towards the end of World War II, something very tragic happened. On July 30th, 1945, the naval battle cruiser USS Indianapolis was struck by a Japanese torpedo, and it sank. In 12 minutes, 300 passengers died, 300 out of 1,200 that were on board. That left 900 men clinging to debris for four days under the blazing sun. One of those men who survived that ordeal would later write about it. And he said that the men became so desperate, they were so thirsty, they convinced themselves that they could drink the salt water of the Pacific Ocean. and Many of them began to do so. This survivor says he spent most of those four days begging the other soldiers, don't drink that salt water, just wait a little longer. Even hitting some of them to try to get them to stop drinking it. But they were so thirsty. Most of them simply got to a point where they could not resist. And drinking that salty water of the Pacific Ocean as a result, only 316 of them survived. It's amazing that many made it. But brothers and sisters, I tell you that because there's a spiritual thirst that is in this world. A thirst for meaning and a thirst for purpose, a thirst for peace, a thirst for forgiveness, a thirst for salvation, a thirst for eternal life, a thirst to know the God who created us. But there is this spiritual thirst that resides in the heart of man, and like those soldiers in the Pacific Ocean, most people in this world around us today, they're so thirsty, they're so desperate, they will drink the poisons of this world to try and quench it. They will drink the salty waters of sexual sin. They will drink the salty waters of materialism. They will drink the salty waters of the occult, of the New Age movement. They'll drink the salty waters of drugs the salty waters of power or prestige or success or any number of things in in an attempt a vain attempt to try to quench that thirst that is inside of them ladies and gentlemen there's only one water that will quench this thirst and it is the living water that only jesus gives Heavenly Father, we thank you for this living water through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came from heaven to earth, that he was willing to be judged and tried, and that he was willing to take the blow of divine justice that belonged to us, that he died on the cross and that he rose again so that even today he can offer that living water to anyone who's thirsty and anyone who's willing to come and drink and believe and be saved. Father, how we pray for those who maybe are in this room this morning who need to accept that invitation for the first time. Maybe those who are watching online who know that in this moment they need to call upon the Lord and be saved. And we pray, O oh God, we plead with you that you'd knock on the doors of hearts, That for some man or woman or boy and girl, this would be that moment where they would finally stop running from you and say, Jesus, I call upon you. I believe in you. I will follow you. All that I am and all that I have is yours. Let this be, God, their day of salvation. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, everyone within the sound of my voice this morning, how often we too question your provision, even though you've provided for us so faithfully so many times, how often we question your protection, even though you've protected us again and again, how often we question your, forget, your presence, even though you promised us you would never leave us or forsake us. Oh, God, forgive us. Help us to trust you in that moment of crisis, in that moment of need in our lives. And help us, oh, Lord, to take that living water that we've received and share it with a world that is desperately in need, a world that is so thirsty for you. Have your way in our hearts in these next moments. Show us how to take all that we've read, all that we've learned, and apply it to our lives today so that you will receive all the honor and the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.